0: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and I'm here with Nancy Lamaster. Nancy works with the Institute for Supply Management. She is the committee chair for the Hospital Purchasing Manager's Index Report. We speak with Nancy every month to find out what's happening with the hospitals, because they are absolutely the front line of the healthcare industry. Nancy, thanks for joining us again.
1: Oh, thanks, Tim, for having me. April was uh, a busy month. Uh,
0: I saw that the uh, business activity index really popped. So give us an overview of the report, and then let's dive down into each of these subcategories.
1: Okay, great. So if you remember, in, in February and March, we saw a real contraction of, of business as the hospitals were starting to empty out of Omicron, um, but the electives had, been com- had not come back. Well, we saw that change uh, in April, kind of as we thought we would. Uh, The the hospital PMI, the global index, the purchasing managers index, was at 56.3, up 5.9%. And where we really, really saw the growth, as you mentioned, business activity went from 44, so it had been contracting, to 61, so a 17% jump. And new orders jumped 12.5 percent. They also had contracting. They jumped to 58.5. So we did see kind of that, that uh, backfill of volume start to come in. Our backlog of orders was still at 55.5. Um, I would expect to see that improve a little next month. But really, you know, given we had such strong business activity and, and such strong new orders. Um, and, the, and the comments from the panelists really did um, indicate that, you know, unlike a year ago in, in 2021, where, you know, the Omicron variant kind of overlapped the Delta variant, right? And we saw a tiny dip, but the hospitals filled back up with more COVID cases. Now we've emptied out of a lot of the cases. There's obviously still some, um, but the current variant hasn't proved to be as um, serious. Um, we're not seeing the hospitalizations. we're seeing lots of cases, um, which is good because I know you saw that horrible employment number where we went back into the contracting down four and a half percent to 48.5. So you know some of the capacity is being constrained, even though there's demand for the elective procedures, the capacity is being constrained by staffing.
0: Yes, I did see that, and I noticed some of the respondent comments uh, mentioned it because they have the capacity, they have the patients, they just don't have the people.
1: Right. And, you know, when you think of hospital operations, obviously, we always think of the nurses and physicians first, but they have to be supported by housekeepers and food service folks and supply chain techs and the inflation and the, the cost of gasoline and things like that are eating into those wage increases that we saw. And so one of the um, comments that came back and I hadn't even thought about it, was that although with the uh, COVID under better control, people were more willing to come back and work inside a hospital, but if they lived very far away, In many cases, now they were starting to reconsider that because they were looking for work closer to home. You know, your core workforce can't be remote. It's got to be there in person. So that's adding yet another kind of wrinkle in being able to recruit and retain the staff that's needed to be able to take care of the patients.
0: So Nancy, we saw business activity go into contraction the prior month. Now in April, it's taken this big pop. Is this the equilibrium between COVID cases and elective procedures now beginning to weigh in favor of elective procedures?
1: That's what we're seeing right now. I think everybody's kind of holding their breath as we see more variants come out, right? Trying to understand what that could mean. But, um, you know, as you and I've talked about, you know, the more people that get vaccinated and boosted, the better. There's more people that have built up immunity And now we have these antiviral drugs that physicians can prescribe for patients to take at home to try and keep those who do get sick from getting very sick and requiring hospitalization. So, you know, again, it's kind of a day at a time, but you kind of, uh, I was able to go to first time since COVID hit um, in-person conference of supply chain, healthcare supply chain providers and healthcare supply chain manufacturers. And and the conversation there in general was this idea that you know maybe we're starting to get into a, a better balance of patients um, that you know people are, are thinking that this is going to last at least a little bit longer than previously where we've seen a little bit of improvement but within a month or two you know we're filled up with COVID again.
0: And the new of jump is this patients now being comfortable coming back to the hospitals and doctors actually being able to schedule procedures?
1: Exactly. It's the ability now to say, we are confident enough, we are going to have beds open if, you know, if they come in for elective procedures, some of them still, remember that word elective is misleading, right? Because it simply means you're not going to die if we postpone it for 30 days, So, you know, we're talking about people with cancerous tumors that need to be removed. In some cases, heart procedures that, while not immediately life threatening, you know, require a hospital stay post surgical. So now hospitals are feeling comfortable enough that they'll have that ICU bed just in case they need it. Um, And they're bringing back not just the simplest of electives like cataract surgery or things that are are very outpatient oriented but some of these more involved elective procedures and so you know that's a that's a good sign
0: i wonder if you would pick uh, a couple of the comments that your respondents made i found a few of those to be particularly interesting one from a respondent that said we don't have any covid cases at all Count them
1: on one hand, right? You know, we've we've talked about the fact that this is a disease that's very regional, and we've kind of seen waves go across the country. So you do get a lot of um, variability in terms of how fast it came and how fast it went. You know, there was also a um, comment from out west in the Intermountain region saying they was still were seeing quite a bit of COVID out there. Um, it was from uh, Utah. And so that's a state that's had kind of low vaccination rates, and they've definitely had a hard time pulling out uh, of this. So you're going to see a lot of variability. Um, And, you know, and this changeover from kind of COVID to elective is having an impact on the supply chain, as you would expect, right? Because the types of of supplies that are in demand for um, electives are different than for COVID. And we kind of saw that, I'm sure you kind of noticed um, some of the changes in the supply chain metrics this month and the shortages that were being felt were were different than we felt previously. So we saw a lot of comments about yet again, shortages of IV fluids, um, of laboratory um, reagents of, of some of the plastics, but one of the real serious ones that's just come out is you know we've had the shutdowns you know from talking with uh, with Tim about the manufacturing shutdowns in Shanghai. Well, um, contrast media, which is used in radiate radiology tests, CTs, um, MRIs, um, is in very short supply now. To the point that General Electric and, and the ARM, the Association for Healthcare Resource Materials Managers, have sent out guidelines on how to conserve contrast media. Because they can't get it out of China. Um, And the other place that it's produced is in Sweden. And we have a lot of disruption in that part of the country with the war going on in Ukraine being not too far away. So, you know, we're seeing a shift but you know supplier deliveries did get slightly better at 57 versus 58.5. And those had been in the 70s so that that trend is good. But, you know, we talked last month, we thought inventory had finally contracted down to 40.5. And we thought that matched the sentiment that it was too high, bounced back up to 50.5, 10% increase. And again, the comments that we saw were this lack of predictability in lead times, this lack of of predictability is causing them to increase their inventory, even though the sentiment at 57, up two and a half percent, they're like, we know we know it's too high, but we're still buying. Um, and part of it's right sizing, you know, comments of burning down some PPE, but stocking up on these areas like laboratory and, and, uh, uh, and uh, IV solutions, et cetera. But a lot of it is just the lack of predictability. And, you know, with healthcare supply chain people, the last thing I want to do is put a clinician in a, the, a situation where they can't, they don't have what that patient needs. So we saw a lot of pressure on inventory levels, again due to, you know, just the not knowing, um, and prices. Just like what you heard with the services and the manufacturing, prices were up seventy-seven versus seventy-three. Pharmaceutical pricing held held flat, but the supply pricing was up four and a half percent. So big hits there. Um, at the conference I was at. Tim, there was a lot of talk about the pressure on hospital margins, and and how the high labor costs, the high supply costs, were leaving them kind of trying to figure out what to do because hospitals can't just raise their prices. They they can't add a fuel surtax, you know, to something. Um, so a lot of concern about what's happening with margins and how how they're going to cope.
0: It's fascinating to me how long the supply chain was or how many uh, places they su- bought supplies from and you know I didn't think until I read the respondent comments that if they're short of lab supplies they send my blood down to the lab but there's nothing they can do with it because it's just amazing what goes on behind the scenes in the hospital and I'm wondering Nancy, yes, with all of the talk about reshoring and the like how much of this will move back to the United States, even though it may be slightly more expensive to produce and buy it here, at least we'll have it here.
1: Right, and you still hear, you know, uh, again, anecdotally, or you talk to places like uh, Becton Dixon, they they produce a lot of needles and syringes and core products, they've expanded US uh, production. But, um, you know, one of the comments that was kind of interesting And again, it's comment of one that doesn't necessarily constitute a trend, but that was um, some of these manufacturers who switched and started producing PPE, you know, as part of the uh, request and got payment from the government to, you know, switch over to making ventilators, switch over to making face shields and masks, et cetera, was that they quietly shut that down and are moving back to their core products. So, you know, that was never really a reshoring issue. That was an emergency production act. But still, you know, my big worry is that as we see production uh, pressure on profits and pressure on margins, you know, we seem to have this very short-term memory and that people will go back to buying, you know, saving four cents on a, on a mask and we won't see the, the production we need um, happen. You know, and so there's, again, sort of uh, efforts, discussions going on of, you know, when we talk about the strategic national stockpile and what the government's going to do to reinvigorate that, to refill it, um, is there a way to, to encourage those purchases to be domestic production where we make guarantees to these companies to get them to expand capacity because you know their their shareholders aren't going to be in favor of that unless they've got some long term contracts and some kind of volume guarantees so you know i think that those are all part of the discussions i think it will be great to be able to have multiple examples of it actually happening and i don't think we've seen much of that yet
0: okay yeah i would probably agree uh, i'm also fascinated by one of the comments that came up IV solution is in short supply. And this came up a couple of years ago when a hurricane slammed into the Houston, Texas area, knocked out chemical manufacturers who couldn't make the plastics to supply the IV solution bag manufacturer in Puerto Rico. It's so all interconnected that I found it fascinating that we've hit that bump in the road again.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the production of IV fluids is is a really good example of how, you know, prices got pushed downward. Uh, businesses bought each other. We only have about three producers of IV solutions. One of those is in Puerto Rico. So when we got hit by the hurricane in Puerto Rico and the storms in Puerto Rico, that that's been an issue. And they've been very hesitant to increase production. Um, and so again, uh, I was part of a group that tried to work to get a, a another manufacturer to open a plant in the US. And the stumbling block again was, they needed uh, five to 10 years worth of commitment to be able to get the capital to do it. And very oh. short sighted, you know, people didn't want to commit because, you know, they were afraid they could, they'd be locked into higher prices and somebody could undercut it. So that's still an area that, you know, we, we need to um, have more innovation and new technology. The, the plants have been pretty dated. Now, I, I do know that I think Baxter is making some uh, some investments in that area now. But you think something is as simple as saline water, right? It, yeah. You know, completely shut down a hospital. You can't do surgery. You know, you can't. Anymore, if somebody comes to the hospital, they're sick enough, they need IV fluids. I mean, it's just a really challenging thing that we're learning is some of the most basic, least complex you know, supplies are stoppers. And we've got to do a better job of, of assessing the risk, you know, related to those supplies.
0: And it's interesting that you were trying to get a manufacturer to produce in the United States and they weren't comfortable that they couldn't get a five or 10 year commitment as if five or 10 years from now, we're not going to need IV solution. Right. So, uh, I'm surprised that that uh, didn't turn out uh, as you had hoped. One of the conversations that we have had is, you know, how is the government responding to all this A national health care policy? the ability for doctors and nurses to cross state lines. I'm imagining that's inching forward, but is there any more exciting news that might've popped up since we last spoke, Nancy, on that front?
1: I I haven't really heard anything on that front, but I did come in contact with, and I'll have some updates for you next month, at the conference i was at I, I was introduced to a gentleman from the works well, for the federal government related to the strategic national stockpile and um and some of the work they're doing with 3m and so the plan is to connect back up and and learn a little bit more about this idea of the uh, they call it private public partnership the governor the government partnering more closely with distributors and manufacturers around how could we do a better job of, of managing this strategic stockpile and making sure that the products within it don't expire you know that's one of the big issues is you can't just take medical supplies and sit them somewhere for five years and then you know bring them all out loud again. we need to figure out a way that they don't get wasted that somehow they get circulated through the supply chain you know, like you're almost constantly replenishing that stockpile. You're drawing out of it, you know, moving it through hospitals so those supplies get used before they expire, but you've got a mechanism to fill it back up again. So I think um, I'm going to learn more about where they are and how advanced those discussions are so I can share it with you.
0: That would be fascinating to know that and, you know, how we're doing on the portability of patient records. Although, even with my own doctor, I'm beginning to see some movement in that area. Mm-hmm. Where they have me sign a form that allows my patient records to be more from this within this healthcare system to within that healthcare system, even though it's a different network.
1: Right. There's a there's a core grouping of of data elements. That's the best way I could put it. Um, and it is um, required now that hospitals that information systems uh your electronic health record had to be certified by 2021 i think it was the end of 2021 that they had the capability for the this grouping of of data elements you know some of it demographic about you some of it things like um your allergies, certain medications, et cetera, that they could transmit that data electronically to any third-party system, okay? And so um, the, the, the electronic parts can talk to each other. But what we have to do is make sure that the hospitals are inputting that data into the electronic health record. And so I'll give you a great example that I work on because, you know, one of the projects I work on is data standards in healthcare, and we have not adopted those the way the retail industry has, et cetera. So if you have an implantable device, it has a unique device identifier, just like you'd expect it to. But in many cases, the hospitals don't have the capacity or are not putting it in your electronic health record. If there is a recall on that device, the only way we can find it and associate it with you is if it's in your electronic health record. That's a data element that's supposed to be transferred wherever you go. If it's an implantable device, not all, not all supplies, just implantable devices, if it's available. Well, some places are saying, oh, well, it's not easily available. We're not putting it in there. So we've got a lot of work to do with healthcare providers in order to make this, make all of those elements flow through your medical record. You gotta make sure we get them in your medical record. But there is progress, especially with the electronic end of it. So you're right, you're you're able to see things, you would move uh, if your uh, provider uses Epic for their electronic health record and you go somewhere that uses Cerner, those data elements should be able to transfer over there.
0: Nancy, one last question as we wrap this up. You had mentioned other variants, and the last one that I had heard of was Omicron BA-2. Have there been variants past that?
1: There are sub variants of the BA-2. Like, I think it's BA-2.12.2. You know, there's, like, you know, really academic Sub variants that they're watching um, right now, and I think, and and what they're finding today date that I've read is that it is very contagious. A lot of people are getting it. the The vaccines have some ability to um, to to deal with that variant, but in in terms of preventing serious illness and hospitalization, it's not necessarily blocking people from getting it. But that's why we, you know, knock on wood, we have not seen the spikes in hospitalizations with any of the current variants that they're studying.
0: Well, the good news is we're not going to use the rest of the Greek alphabet, we hope, on this particular
1: one. (laughs) We're all learning new things, aren't we? Yeah.
0: Well, Nancy, thank you again for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio from the Institute for Supply Management and sharing information about this report, I just want to remind our viewers and listeners, they can go to ismworld.org to access the report in full. Nancy, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tim. And for all of you who are surfing around the web and going to ismworld.org, also stop by jacketmediaco.com, where you can find this episode and all of the podcasts that we have put together for the manufacturing and business community. We hope you stop by often and thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio.